I'm Sherry Sylvester, and welcome to the podcast. We are taping in late February, and the state of Texas is currently engaged in the second week of early voting in the 2024 primary election. Election day is March 5, Super Tuesday. Analysis from early voting turnout indicates that the conventional wisdom from many past decades holds true again this year. Only a minuscule number of young people, those under 30, are voting. High school principals in Texas are required by law to serve as deputy voter registrars for the county in which their school is located, ensuring that Texas high school students who are eligible are registered to vote. So this is not an access problem. Logistically, young people are registered and they know how to vote in Texas. But Texas young voters are not bucking the national trend. A recent survey found that less than half of young adults across the country are planning to vote in the next general election in November. Texas has fought to ensure that identity politics and the critical race and gender theory studies that have traditionally replaced civics curricula are being eradicated in our public schools, but the impact still lingers and that fight goes on. Knowledge of U.S. history has plummeted. Nationally, just 14% of eighth graders are proficient in history. And most young Americans tell pollsters that high schools don't adequately prepare them to be voters. My guest today believes that it's time for a call to action. Chris Sinicola has co-edited a new book, Restoring the City on a Hill, a U.S. history of civics in American schools. He highlights the saga of many states that created world-class public school history and civics programs in the 1990s, which were then abandoned in favor of the leftist ideology of DEI, identity politics, and grievance communities. He's going to tell us how bad it's gotten and what we can do to turn it around. Chris, thanks for joining us on the Sherry Sylvester Show. Well, thanks, Sherry. Glad to be here. Glad to join you. Well, so I yesterday I heard a young man talking from El Paso, El Paso being the eighth or ninth largest city in the country, and he had found in an, analyzing their early vote that less than 1% of the people who had turned out, we can analyze our vote every day, less than 1% of the people who had turned out were under the age of 30 in that metropolitan area. So as you said, as I told you, in Texas, we register people to vote in high school. You've got, so what, right. what do you, how does it look to you? Wow, that's amazing. Well, when you were doing the intro and uh, mentioned that, that principals are deputy registrars in Texas, that was amazing to me. So you're quite right. It's not a question of access. And we have heard this for years, right? That, oh, voter suppression here and there, Georgia being one of the prime examples of that. There was so much talk about that. But when you get beyond the rhetoric and look at the actual turnout, it turned out there was no voter suppression going on in Georgia. They voted in larger numbers than ever before. But the trends are interesting when you analyze that. It's the youth who aren't voting. And so often we hear, oh, the youth are going to change the world and or women are going to change the world or this group or that group, you know, because I think the media love to slice and dice people into little boxes and claim that this group or that group is going to have an outsized influence on an election. 
But um, when you do that sober uh, post-election analysis, or in Texas's case, even day by day, you can look at the numbers, uh, it turns out to be not, not so good. And those trends are concerning when just, uh, that's an unbelievable number, less than 1% under 30. I know the older folks love to vote. I personally couldn't wait till I could vote. It was 1980 and I, was, I missed the voting by a month. I wasn't old enough to vote in the um, presidential election when Reagan was first elected. Um, at the time, I don't think I would have voted for Reagan, but that's another story. But uh, as soon as I could vote, I went out and voted, and I voted in every election, local, state, federal, ever since. I love voting. Um, so it's a very different mindset, I think, today. Among well, and maybe that's part of it. Your parents voted, I assume. Absolutely. My Absolutely. parents voted too. And is is we talk a lot about what can, schools can do, but I wonder if there's also a change in the culture, the family culture of voting. I mean, it would never have occurred to me not to vote as soon as I was old enough to vote. I, I went Absolutely. To vote. I remember like my driver's license. Yeah, it's a rite of passage. And my my mom's folks um, who lived locally here in New England and went way back, you know, deep roots in New England. Uh, my grandmother was a, a blue dog Democrat and mm -hmm. my grandfather was a Republican. And um, after he passed away, my grandmother continued to vote Democratic, even though she was about as Republican a person as you ever want to meet. She thought she was a Democrat. Um, and uh, on my dad's side, you know, immigrant Italians, and they voted proudly as soon as they were able to vote, became citizens, assimilated, you know, part of the American dream, a story that we're all familiar with. So you're you're right. It makes a huge difference to have those family traditions, to make that part of what it is to be an American. And when you raise your kids, uh, to inculcate in them the importance of voting, because it's precious. And it's you look around the world, you look at places like Russia and uh, other places, it's, you know, it's something we take for granted and we should not take for granted. It's, it's a precious right. Well, and it's not, I mean, it's not just been one battle. I mean, there was the, my, my grandmother told me when she voted for the first time in 1920 that we mm -hmm. all went, saw the civil rights movement and what a huge battle that was to make sure that African-Americans had rights, uh, the right to vote as well as Mexican-Americans mm -hmm. here in Texas. Mm -hmm. So yep. where are we now? Why is this? Is this, uh, I mean, I know that our president is, is trying to reach out to the younger vote on TikTok. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how successful that will be, but where is it just that they're not interested? Our politics are pretty toxic. What do you think the problem is? I think it's a number of things. Um, some of it is definitely in the schools, the lack of emphasis on civics, or maybe I should say good quality civics and history instruction. I think most states, including Massachusetts and Texas, I'm sure, have something that they call civics, history, or social studies, depending on where you are. And I certainly remember being in school and having all three of those labels at one point or another. Usually civics was part of a history curriculum. Um, but the question is really, how in-depth is it? How rigorous is it? Um, do they emphasize things like the American founding and documents? And look, these documents are hard, right? The, the Federalist Papers are not an easy read by any stretch of the imagination. So you need really well-qualified teachers to lead students. And my wife teaches, she's, she's a Latin teacher, so it's a different discipline, but certainly the process of teaching is hugely important. And if you don't have great teachers, well, that's one strike against you. If you don't have intact families where, you know, two-parent households who really care and are taking the time to make sure the students are doing the homework, that's another strike. And then you have a culture. Um, some of it is the, the media, usually the mainstream media, I have to say, 
who are not really giving you much. They want to give kids things which are are fun and easy. Um, you know, and you mentioned TikTok. Uh, social media platforms can be great. Don't get me wrong. You know, I love my podcasts. Um, but I don't love so much that uh, moment when I find myself, I think like all of us, you know, scrolling through some social media and you, you just stop yourself and say, well, wait a second, I could be reading a great book instead of this. <laughs> and I think young people, um, you know, the generation has grown up with screens. My own children grew up with screens. I think they've come out okay. But um, yeah, it's a very different world from the one that we grew up in, you know, where, we, where you had books and you were limited how much TV you could watch. You had to, you know, eat your carrots and you had to uh, do your homework and then you get some screen time, maybe, if you were good. Um, so there's a lot of things competing for kids' attention today. And I think history and civics gets uh, shunted to the side often because, you know, you have to pass the math. You have to know English language arts. And then there's some science, a STEM, emphasis on all that. So by the time you get down to history, it's almost like, well, there's no time left. Sorry, kids, you know. Well, so, we we work on it a lot in Texas. Uh, we we have uh, we're working now to reform our civics curriculum. Uh, we tried to when we uh, took uh, critical race theory out of the schools. Uh, we bolstered our our uh, uh, history curriculum. Right. Uh, added much, much more on African American history, Mexican American history, uh, Native American history. We've we've got very strong backgrounds that way, but I'm right. still I'm not sure that 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 medium, and that's why I was interested in your book. I'm not sure if the medium of the classroom is the way to get to kids, but I'm willing to be convinced if you think it is. Well, I I have a lot of thoughts on this topic: how to reach kids. Um, and thinking of my own experience doing homeschooling, which is, uh, we did maybe 30 years worth of homeschooling with wow. our four kids combined. They went to different, they went to some vocational schools, some private parochial, that sort of thing, some public charter schools. So it was a real mix. The one school they didn't go to was the local district regular public school, which aren't bad where we live, but we always felt we can do more. We can give them a more you know, enriching academic experience. And we would use a variety of things, online courses, uh, great courses you know, from the teaching company that were very popular and still are, I believe. Um, we would take them you know, on field trips and get together with other families. So there's many ways to reach kids. I fear that sometimes folks who are on the political right view it as we have to force feed the founders to folks. Well. The problem with that, of course, is that, as I said earlier, I mean, I just went through the Federal's papers cover to cover for the first time. I mean, I dipped into them over the years, but I thought I got to read this cover to cover. It's hard going, you know, for educated adults. It's probably impossible for kids. So you need those guides and you need ways to present it that, frankly, are going to be palatable to kids who have grown up in an era where they expect everything to be instantaneous and moving pictures and all the rest. So in the book, we talk, uh, we talk about some of the problems with, say, video game civics. Well, maybe we, we need to examine that a little more carefully to discriminate between what can be a good use of those media and what is a shallow use of those media, right? Because you can reach kids many different ways. Uh, as I say, my wife teaches and she uses some games. Uh, there are a number of apps that she can use with her students that are terrific for teaching Latin vocabulary and, and quizzes and so forth. 
But you have to be careful to keep the focus on the quality of the curriculum to make it rigorous and real. Um, so you mentioned you know, DEI, um, and it's very interesting to hear what Texas is doing. And folks, of course, you've heard this, we've all heard these criticisms coming from folks who defend DEI and on, on the political left, and they say, oh, well, you want to throw out all the diversity. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. What we want is exactly the opposite. We want to focus on diversity and the wonder of this country and its diversity and all the peoples who belong here in a way that's real, that really focuses on who they were, what are their stories, what were their contributions. Well, DEI and critical race theory is all this layer thrown on top that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, I've read Ibram Kendi's books. I've read uh, a, a lot of books that are on the left. And it's not that they're wrong so much as it's basically useless nonsense. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is, in my view, at least. So, Well, it divides us up in ways. And, and one of the basic premises of our country is about our individual freedom and, and and how we individually make up the the uh, the republic, and uh, so it, yep. it's it's very counter to what we're trying to do. And and yeah, the more you see it, the more you see how shallow it is. There, the yep. the uh, the history is shallow. We joke about at the University of Texas, they do these acknowledgments to the indigenous tribes. You know, we want to thank all the tribes that were here beforehand, you know, but, you know, who was in Texas for the longest time was, you know, were the Spanish, you know, so mm -hmm. probably should be thanking the king of Spain at some point, you know, for uh, turning, turning the land over. But uh, so, but we've got these kids. So we can, we've got our opinions about it, and we know that we're right. But we've got kids, as you as you see from the polling, that uh, they're kind of how they see themselves in the world. Uh, they're pro labor union. Mm -hmm. They tend to be. They tend to kind of have a leftist tinge to them, and uh, they are separated from their own economics. In a, in a lot of ways. I'm not sure if they see now uh, uh, if, if inflation and the economy impacts them and, they, and that would be a motivator to vote or mm -hmm. if it's just a, a, something that resonates for them as how helpless they are. Yeah, that's, it's an excellent question and, and a hard one to, to figure out. I do detect when I talk to young people, and by that I, I guess I mean anyone younger than I am, but let's say under 30 or 35, a lot of them don't vote. And a lot of folks you would expect to vote who hold jobs and pay taxes and so forth, you think, well, they should be invested. And then it comes to election day and the day after and you say at the office, well, you know, did you go to vote? And you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Or, oh, yeah, I had something else to do. And to me, that's just, you know, election day, the 5th of March, Super Tuesday, that's the day I go. And look, I live in Massachusetts. Does it matter how I vote? Sometimes <laughs> I wonder. But it matters that I vote. Absolutely. Um, and I think one way to get to, to kids is, you know, you think back to your, your own days in school, whether it was a film strip, remember film strips or overhead projectors, this sort of thing, or occasionally you'd see a documentary film, and you would see some of the struggles in the civil rights era. I mean, that stuff is moving. Or... It, as moving as when you watch films about the Holocaust, you can't watch that stuff and come away not caring at all about what happens to those people because it really is the human story 
right? These, these stories of struggle and heartbreak and people overcoming enormous odds just to survive, um, to get an education, you know, in the South and during segregation and so forth. So if you can reach kids that way and then have them have a little, you know, Q&A afterwards, a little discussion like, well, how does that make you feel? You know, don't you want to go out and vote once you're 18 years old? Maybe you reach them that way a little bit. Um, a lot of great reading. But I think another problem is the displacement. There's only so many hours in the day in the classroom. And we always talk about, you know, time on task and over-testing, too much, too little, that sort of thing. Um, you have to get these kids when they're young, in their formative years, and you have to fill their brains with really high quality stuff. Because if instead you're checking a bunch of DEI boxes, they're not really getting anything. That's mm -hmm. not something you can grab onto. It's not going to stay with you the way that a great story, um, even some of the stories we heard you know, younger about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, okay, some of that turned out not to be true, but still in all, it's inspirational. And then you go back later on, you know, when you read stuff like, I mean, I read everything left, right, and center. So I can read Howard Zinn and say, okay, I, I get it. I know where he's going and I know why he's writing this book. And okay, there's a corrective here. But that's not the first thing kids need. Kids need to know the story. They need to know the country was founded for very good reasons, that it was unique in human history. And it has endured for 250 odd years for a very good reason. Um, and once they know that story, there'll be plenty of time when they get to college and into their adult years for them to delve into all this other stuff, you know, and argue about how terrible things are. Um, and, and they need to get that. They yeah, I think that piece of not of being taught not to love the country, you miss those you miss those little details like the first anti-slavery right. meeting anywhere in the world was in Boston, I believe, or Philadelphia. Yeah. I can't remember, but yeah. but in 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 the U.S. Sure. You know, I I uh, read a poll preparing for this that said that the the uh, voters uh, between eighteen and twenty nine their approval rating of the president is not any higher than anybody else's it's in the low 30s but yeah. still the president if you ask them who they're voting for you know he's 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 way ahead so there's a way that mm -hmm. the republican side is not appealing to young voters is do, do you see a partisan split that way the young people that vote do they vote democrat or i i think they probably do um it's interesting in massachusetts everyone thinks oh very very blue state which is true but when you look at party affiliation, Republicans are something like seven to ten percent registered Republicans, and Democrats probably twenty-five or so, thirty percent right. maybe. And everyone else is unenrolled. And when I look at that, I think they're in that great persuadable middle, right? And I look at this choice like a lot of folks the last four to six years. I mean, there was a bumper sticker, giant meteor two thousand twenty. And I, I wish I had one giant meteor twenty twenty four. Because I'm not real happy with the choice we have, right? Um, but I think like a lot of people, I'm just looking for some some normal Americans. I mean, we've got to do better than this. You know, 330 million of us. There must be some some sane folks who don't say crazy things and and who are um, not, well, octogenarians, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, is that too much to ask? Maybe it is. Oh, yeah. um, but as to the question, is there a split? I think there is. You know, I think younger folks kind of naturally feel, well, they usually start out liberal. You know, the old sayings, you know, no heart, you know, I'm at 20, I'm a liberal, and then no brain if you're not a conservative at 40 or whatever the saying is. Um, and, and certainly I went through that myself, you know, when I was much younger, 
tended to be more liberal in my views. And, you know, you grow up, you pay taxes, you start getting children of your own and family in a house. And you're like, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, I really have skin in the game now. Maybe I don't want to vote for all those programs. And maybe I want to control the size of government and so forth. So that's part of the story. Um, and I guess you could say, well, thank goodness they don't vote in such large numbers sometimes. You know, everybody says, oh, we want everyone to vote. And on paper, that's true. We want to get everybody out there and want them to vote. But what dismays me is when you when you talk to people who just pull a lever for DR or, or Libertarian Green or what have you, simply because their parents did or their grandparents right. did. They haven't given it much thought. They're not really invested in that. Um, they're not thinking things through. And I guess in my more cynical moments, I say, well, I hope they stay home. And that's well, and a terrible thing to say. You want them to vote, right? And yeah, I think we're seeing a transition, at least on the ground, and this may also be affecting the voting of the political parties. The political parties are really not what they used to be. Uh, that uh, in a big state like Texas and probably in Massachusetts as well, the voters are organized by the candidates. The governor organizes the voters. The senators organize the voters. They're the people that have the statewide list. The party it, it's, is like a rump group of folks, and it's they're always at war for who's in control of the party, but the party doesn't really influence anybody. It, w it wouldn't be something that you would want to stand up and say, yeah, I'm 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 with those guys over there, uh, and and I think that's just a transition that has happened. But I wanted to ask you something else that I wondered in in terms of what you put in the book and what you suggested for people: Are elections when you go in to vote are they too hard to follow? I don't know what the ballots look like in Massachusetts, but now when there's polling, I get a call every day, and someone says to me. Sherry, you've got, first of all, we elect our judges in Texas. Mm -hmm. So you've got to tell me, you know, who should I vote for? Because nobody can, if you're in an urban area, there may be yep. 30 judges on your ballot. Mm -hmm. And uh, yep. in these primary elections, each party has partisan issues on the ballot. And then in general elections, we have constitutional issues. Do you think it's, it's you know, real smart grown-ups can't figure this out, so... Yeah, that, that can be a problem. I mean, I know for the presidential ballots, they draw lots to see who's going to be on the top. And and some folks I've heard, and I don't have reason to disbelieve this, will simply go in and check the first name at the top of the list, mm -hmm. which is bizarre. We all remember the famous butterfly ballot, which caused so much confusion in Florida. Um, but here in Massachusetts, we often have oh, two, three, or four ballot initiative questions. And the, the wording of those can be uh, very difficult, very hard to puzzle out. And what does a no vote mean? What does a yes vote mean? And you need a Philadelphia lawyer to figure that stuff out sometimes. So, you know, you're getting mailings from both sides. So when you go to the polls, you'd be prepared to vote the right way. But it's hard to know what the right way is, even if you're firm in your political beliefs and convictions, because the language is so convoluted. Um, so this can be a problem, and it, it may be another reason that young people just throw up their hands and say, well, I'd rather watch the latest, uh, you know, the latest episode of my favorite TV series or play a video game with my friends. Um, I, which is I was at a media panel in uh, Houston yesterday, and there was a panel of uh, uh, Gen Z and uh, asking them why they weren't engaged in voting. And the conclusion with all of our conversations here was that they just couldn't be bothered. They were too lazy. One one young woman yeah. just said, you know, I, I just, you know, it's not something that I care about. 
But you called your book Restoring the City on the Hill. So how do we do that? Well, but I, I remember one quote from that time we were mentioning, you know, when uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded there in the first 30 or 40 years, the literacy rate was in the 80 percentile. Right. You know? right. People were very involved. They voted. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's an interesting title because, of course, it's ultimately scriptural. Um, and then it was John Winthrop who used those words to encourage, you know, other like-minded folks to go with him to the new world. And if you read the rest of that quote, it's, um, you know, you can't hide, you can't hide from this, right? If you're, you're a city on the hill, you're going to be seen, the example you're set, setting uh, for the nation and for the world will be seen. And I think folks misinterpret that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that particular phrase, but they seem to think, oh, it's about American exceptionalism and so forth. Well, maybe that's what it came, came to be understood as. But I like to say to folks, when, you know, you set yourself up as an example for the nation, you better get it right, because if you don't get it right, then everyone's going to see that you failed. Um, and Massachusetts, for a long time, had it right. You know, from 1993, when we did the Education Reform Act, the deal was a lot more money for public schools in exchange for a couple of things, high stakes testing and a system of public charter schools, which were very successful and were supposed to be examples, you know, a city on the hill. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a charter school with that very name. But the district public schools, rather than looking upon them as allies or examples to emulate, viewed them instead, of course, as rivals and something that had to be suppressed and capped and enrollments limited and so forth. So that's an old story, power struggles in education, you know, who would expect that? Um, but as to how we do it, a lot of hard work, right? You're gonna have to get great teachers. Um, I think we're gonna have to focus a lot of attention on the urban school districts, which are frankly, dreadful in many parts of this country. And this is a story that goes way back. And a lot of commentators um, left and right have pointed that out. But I think we disagree on how to go about it. You know, uh, the, the left uh, folks like Jonathan Kozel written very eloquently about the problems, but their solution seems always to be, well, more money, more resources. But then fast forward 30 or 60 years from the time he was he was active, he's still around, but um, and you ask yourself, well, if Boston is spending thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars per student, what are they getting? And the answer is they're not getting very much. And that same thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars being spent in one of the suburbs is getting a lot more. Um, I think of Los uh, New Orleans rather after Katrina, basically remade their entire school system into charter schools, mm -hmm. and the results have been dramatically better. Um, so you need to get people invested in this, and I think you need to break that old thinking, that teacher union monopoly public school mentality, where everything, you know, nothing can be really achieved because we have to go through the union and we have to go through this and that. So um, one of the things Pioneer has done and is doing is developing uh, what we call a civics 2.0 curriculum, uh, which will be about history and civics, and take that directly to parents and homeschoolers and microschoolers and private schools because you're never going to get such a thing approved by the, the bureaucrats in education. Um, they have a big head start and they have a lot of money and a lot of inertia. So you have to take the fight you know, directly to the kids because it's who has time? You know, your kids are kids for a few years and then they grow up and they go off out into the world. And if you don't get them, well, you lose. So. 
Yeah, that's that's the piece that the uh, the bureaucrats uh, miss. We're engaged in that battle here in Texas on uh, school choice. Ironically, you know, we're we're a conservative state, uh, but we we do have not passed school choice, and uh, our governor is actively engaged in the election to elect legislators who support uh, options. We have good charter schools, school system right. in Texas. Yeah. So let me ask you one more question. You recommend in your book a couple of things. One is requiring kids to pass the U.S. citizenship test. And sure. uh, how, how does that work and how has that worked and does anybody do that? Does it, do any states I, do that? There are a handful of states, I think maybe 12 or 13 at last count, that do use the U.S. citizenship exam um, as one test. Uh, you know, kids have to pass it in order to uh, graduate. Uh, in Massachusetts, we have MCAS, the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System tests, and they don't include history and civics. So we've uh, recommended that that be made a requirement, part of the testing regimen, in addition to English, math, and science. Um, but the U.S. citizenship test would be at least something. It'd be a fairly easy way to get some idea of what people know. Um, the passing grade for aspiring Americans is 60%. Most do much better. They get 95, 100% because they really are motivated to be here, right? They want to come here. The ones who are coming here legally and taking the right. test become citizens. So um, Pioneer did a poll last year, which found that 400 <clears throat> folks in Massachusetts, you know, citizens, took this, the average score was 63%. So the good news is they get to stay as citizens. You know, we're not going to kick anybody out if they fail this test. Of course, the, the sad part about that is it was only 63%. And the questions are not particularly difficult. Things like how many senators are there? And, you know, what is a senator's term? Basic stuff, which in time, most people do get a handle on that. You know, they go to pub trivia nights, they read books here and there, they listen to you know, the History Channel. I think they'd get it eventually. Um, so I don't throw up my hands in despair when I see low test scores, because I think, well, these are teenagers after all, there's a lot going on in their lives. But you'd like to think that a poll of 400, you know, citizens in Massachusetts would do a little better than 63% on average. Um, so we think if that were in the schools, it would be um, one way, sort of a lowest common denominator, if you will, kids would at least know those few things, right? So it would be a way to start, and maybe it would open the door to some other reforms and convince uh, policymakers and lawmakers, even in deep blue Massachusetts, you know, wouldn't be a bad idea if we tested history after all. Yeah. It's a terrific idea. Maybe you could partner it with, uh, I'm sure they have it there, uh, uh, DAR uh, goes down every week to yep. the federal courthouse, and when people are sworn in, you know, give them cookies and American flag pins and, and right. people that have studied for that test who barely speak English and can pass it. And, and uh, right. it, it, again, gives you an idea of, of uh, what an honor and a value it is to be in this country and to vote. Indeed. Chris, what, yeah, else, what other advice, before I let you go, what other advice sure. do you have for those of us here in this, in this big red state from that old blue state, what other advice do you have for us about what well, we should do about history? And it's, it's always dicey, right? When Massachusetts folks, you know, recommend something like a presidential candidate for the country, because it doesn't always work out well. Um, no. So I don't want to I don't want to be perceived as, you know, the uh, the liberal blue state telling Texas how to run its affairs, certainly. But one 
piece of advice that we do emphasize in the book, we review some of the states that had really good history and civics curricula over the years and how they've slipped a little bit and did some backsliding. Um, so when it comes to creating those curricula or revising them, which Texas seems to be doing at this point, mm -hmm. super important that parents and uh, activists and groups, uh, PTOs and so forth, get out and make their voices heard. And um, I spent 30 years doing reporting, you know, local news reporting, and there is nothing more powerful um, and nothing more beautiful to see for a reporter sitting in the audience and nothing more frightening to public officials that when really motivated parents who are angry about something speak up at a public meeting and say, you know, we don't like this curriculum. We don't like what you're doing with our kids. These are our kids. This is our tax dollars. So I would say um, anyone listening to this, uh, any parent, if you're not satisfied and you don't feel that your kid is getting what he or she should be getting in the public schools, by all means, speak up. Go to one of those school board meetings, get together, you know, have coffee with some of your neighbors, band together and go out there and, and demand some change because they will ultimately listen to you. And that is uh, democracy at its finest, in my view. Great. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And thank, thank you so you. much, Sherry. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today for the Sherry Sylvester podcast. You can get this podcast uh, at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to sign up for my newsletter, Ninth in Congress, you can do it at uh, the Texas Public Policy website, www.ninthincongress.com. Thanks so much. <laughs>